I'm going to start by asking you a question this morning. Have you ever been fooled by false advertising? You know, when the sales pitch doesn't exactly come through with the legitimate product? Don't worry, I've got some examples. The first one, and this is a bugbear for many years, Macca's and Hungry Jack's Burgers. Have you seen them in the ads? They're these giant, juicy, colourful, perfectly composed burgers that you need two hands and to lean over and you have to, you know, get your mouth around it and it's quite a big ordeal. And then when you get them, they're thrown into a box all over the place and about a quarter of the size. In fact, now a Big Mac is actually completely false advertising because it's not big at all, is it? False advertising. Exactly. It's a cheeseburger now. Yeah, I agree. Cheeseburgers are about the only ones that we can rely on because they were small to start with and they're still glorious. But anyway, that's a different thing. There's a, there's a shop, there's an online shop as well called Wish. If any of you are online and you have shopped at Wish before, they promise a lot of really amazing products. They don't always, and they're very cheap, but they don't always come out quite how you expect them to. What about the good old infomercials, you know, like Danos Direct or whatever, that say you can't get a better deal from anywhere else, you won't find them in the shops, but then if you wait a little bit longer, you see them suddenly appear in cheapest chips? They lie. What about when a celebrity or a public figure who, you may be, who may be well loved or admired suddenly comes out with some sort of scandal that makes us all question who they really are? There's a fairly popular saying that's going around on social media and they've got these picture memes um, these days that talk about expectation versus reality. And I have a few pictures here. I think that should be there for Ash to pop up that will explain it. Expectation. New Year's resolution. I'm going to go running. I'm going to get fit and I'm going to look great. And then a week later the reality is snoozing on the couch. Expectation versus reality. What's the next one? <laughs> yeah, it's after the run. Snowman. I'm going to build a snowman. I mean, we probably can't do that here. But I would assume that it doesn't always come out looking like that and probably more like that. Expectation versus reality. Yep, see, this is what I'm talking about. It's like the Big Mac. Burger King, in the ad, it looks perfect. And I know this is American, but you get the idea. You get it and it doesn't look anything like that. I'm not even sure what that is at the bottom. Expectation versus reality. And this is like what I was explaining to the wish version of a beautiful dress that you see online and you think that would be a perfect option and then you get it and it looks like that. Expectation versus reality. Is that all of them? There's one more? Oh yeah, yeah. Let's get a puppy. It'll be so cute. They can sleep in our bed and it'll be beautiful and yeah, they take over the whole bed and it's not so beautiful after all. Expectation versus reality. Is that it? Yeah, it's not always as it seems, is it? But basically, you get the idea. Today, we're going to be unpacking scripture from Matthew 23, in which we hear from Jesus about some of the most well-known religious leaders of those times, the Pharisees, now, we talk a bit about the Pharisees, and often they become the perfect example of maybe what not to do, or they at least seem to be the ones that Jesus is able to really deliver his reality check in his times of teaching. The scripture, in some ways, is no different, 
and the title of the passage is A Warning Against Hypocrisy. Strap in, here we go. Matthew 23, verses 1 to 12, A Warning Against Hypocrisy. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything that they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honour at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven." Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So I think it's important to start by giving you a bit of a refresher about these dear old Pharisees that we talk about so often. Now in first century Palestine there were four main varieties, I suppose, or branches of Judaism religion. There were the Pharisees who gave special emphasis on the interpretation and adaptation of Mosaic law, which was the law of Moses. Then there were the Sadducees who were closely associated with the activities at the temple of Jerusalem. So typically the high priest was selected from these ranks and were seen by many Jews as overly friendly with the Roman overlords. Basically, they liked to mix religion with power and society. And then there were the Essenes, who comprised of a serious and strict community based in the desert of Qumran, and they were viewed by other groups as having deviated from the authentic faith of Israel. They'd kind of gone a little bit rogue in their beliefs and customs. And then finally, there were the Zealots. Their main activity involved throwing off the Roman powers that generally meant military force style. All in the name of religion though, right? (laughs) Now of these four groups, only the Pharisees survived the Jewish revolt that ended with the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. So therefore, as Matthew is telling these stories, he would have been writing after 70 CE when the Pharisees were the primary rivals opposing Jesus' Christian community, which is why they are mentioned so often in Jesus' interactions and are probably most known by our modern world to be the opposition or the dodgy ones trying to push against Jesus. They were the argumentative ones. The Pharisees were teachers, though, and they were interpreters of the law of Moses. They devoted their lives to knowing every detail of the law of Moses, and they were hot on reminding everyone about it. This is why we see so often in Scripture the Pharisees asking Jesus about his behaviours and teachings, because they were a bit crazy to them. To give them a little bit of credit, though, it would have been incredibly confronting to have some of the acts and rituals questioned by a man who also claimed to be the son of God. So the Pharisees are not bad guys, all right? We, don't, we give them a lot of stick, but they're not bad guys. They're just doing what they know is right. In this instance, it doesn't appear that the Pharisees are in earshot of Jesus' teaching, though, to the crowds and disciples. So I guess their role in this interaction is just to play the example for Jesus to get his message across. 
So Jesus starts by giving them their dues, uh, which is important, and it's an acknowledgement to to make straight away before he gets into the good stuff. And he says that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law sit in Moses' seat, meaning that they have devoted their lives to know, teach and live the laws of Moses. Knowing that Jesus' purpose on earth is to fulfil the law of Moses, he doesn't want to discard their authority to teach and know the laws. In fact, he says that the people must be careful to do everything that they tell them. However, then Jesus lays out some hard truths. He says, but do not do what they do, do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Whoa, here's a reality check that no one wants to hear. And if that's not enough, he then gives examples. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on others' shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Ouch. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honour at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Now, just as a side note, let me just clear this up before we go on. What on earth is a phylactery? I think I'm pretty proud of even being able to say it. But I'll explain. There were small leather boxes strapped onto the arm or even the forehead, believe it or not, containing parchment inscribed with biblical texts. So kind of like the old WWJD bracelets or maybe even these days a tattooed scripture placed as a reminder of your commitment to God. So the bigger the phylactery, I'm imagining it, how big can it get? The longer the tassels on the garments, the more biblical knowledge they have, even the position in which they sit at the banquet table highlights a sense of importance or holiness perhaps. They certainly like to be seen to be living the holy life and it's because of this that they come to enjoy being greeted with respect and called rabbi by others. There's a real sense of pride for their accomplishments in living this set-apart lifestyle and they definitely like to be acknowledged for it. Fair enough. But the problem is, Jesus is on to him. Jesus recognises that the devotion and commitment of the Pharisees to follow the law of Moses and give their lives to God has become something completely different. The Pharisees have swung too far into pride and social status that they are now in a dangerous place of earthly self-importance, which is now putting their example and influence and especially their relationship with God in question. Despite their incredible knowledge of God, how do they get it so wrong? The problem isn't their religious traditions or teachings. The problem sits with what they're doing with it personally. And as we sit here today and unpack the behaviours of the Pharisees, we must be clear in understanding that this is a question about true discipleship and not to be confused with the condemning of others. The issue in question for the Pharisees is that they are misusing their authority. In their endeavours to teach the laws and devote themselves to God, they are actually behaving in ways that are counter to the truth that they know and teach. They speak of glorifying God... Well, what they're actually interested in is self-recognition. As the title suggests in this passage, what we see of the Pharisees here are a bunch of hypocrites. Now, what is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is a person who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs or feelings. Now, in my experience, the use of the word hypocrite can feel extremely offensive if it's directed 
my way, your way. Do you agree? You don't want to be called a hypocrite. It feels, feels a bit rough, right? So if I was to suggest that there is a possibility that we are all at times hypocrites, there might be a chance that offence might follow. I get that. If I walked around saying, you're a hypocrite, Aaron, you're a hypocrite, you know, like, it's not kind. But as I reflected on this passage throughout the week, wondering what good can come from unpacking this particular text, it became clear to me that sometimes these tough conversations, while not always comfortable, are so, so important for us to all grapple with. So I'm going to highlight potentially two types of Christian hypocrite this morning. And the first one is called, or affectionately called, the peacock hypocrite. The peacock hypocrite is much like the Pharisee, often seen in those who have been a committed Christian for many years, also often in leadership roles. Their knowledge of the Bible, or at least Christian traditions, are ingrained in their lives and church routines are pretty much set unless extenuating circumstances occur. One might also be involved in many activities, offering their services wherever possible, especially if it will be noticed by others because the church needs them and what they have to offer is an asset to the church community. While these attributes can be respectable, things go awry when one begins to expect certain attention, recognition or privileges simply because of longevity, knowledge, service, leadership status or attendance. One can struggle when others shine in accepting changes and straying from what has been the known normal can leave one feeling obsolete or forgotten. Actions often look like becoming rigid, resentful or clinging on to whatever powers one might still have for as long as possible. Personally, the peacock hypocrite can find themselves increasing in anger and resentment to the point where their personal commitment to God becomes overwhelmed by the politics of church community, so much so that they can't focus on God without thoughts straying towards the issues and injustices and eventually contemplate moving to a new church or leaving altogether. The second one is the wallflower hypocrite. Now, the wallflower hypocrite attends all the necessary events routinely like everyone else. They generally attempt to be present at as many gatherings and can have opinions and thoughts towards all the happenings in a church community. While one might attend events, contribution is slim to none. This might come from an understanding that church community is a place to receive or to be served by others or because one's belief of themselves is that they're not good enough to do anything of any worth in the church. Things go awry with the wallflower hypocrite when the church community is lacking active participants and resources run dry from the constant need to supply for the inactive members. Programs exist simply to keep the wallflower hypocrite attending, but growth slows down. Church community turns inward and focus turns from reaching community to pleasing the inner circle of non-participating members. Personally, the wallflower hypocrite fails to grow in knowledge, faith or identity in Christ. They become unsatisfied by what they're receiving and eventually question whether they should bother attending church anymore at all. Now, these are just two examples and I just want to reiterate that this is not an exercise of finger pointing or judging. I'm sure there are some uncomfortable thoughts and feelings being tugged at right now and if so, you're in good company. 
I stand up here today admitting that Aaron and I are no better than anyone else. In fact, as church leaders, it is so, so important for us to be constantly checking ourselves and being real about where we're at and how we are reacting and dealing with day-to-day issues, as well as how we are serving our church community. If you're sitting here today, though, and all your mind can do is think of others' behaviours, can I encourage you to do a work within yourself too? This challenge is not for us to look at others, but to look inwardly to our own hearts and grow from it. The thing is, Jesus wasn't tearing down the Pharisees. He wasn't condemning them or encouraging the people to point fingers at them. In fact, remember, he instructed the people to respect and listen to their teaching and leadership. However, Jesus needed to share their example because Jesus' heart was committed to growing intimate and personal relationship with all people. What Jesus is dealing with in this passage is the matter of pride. A lot of our human sin, which begins to separate us from God and each other, is primarily a matter of pride. Pride hates us to sit in equality under God and seeks to push importance and status above others rather than our equal submission to God's rule. That's the enemy's work there. The enemy doesn't want us gathered together in unity under God. It's so easy to confuse our interests with God's purpose, our power with God's sovereignty, our strength with God's glory. Unfortunately, we humans have a strong tendency to create false and sinful hierarchies that displace God's authority. We have tendency to ignore or rebel against God's kingdom in order to protect our own minor things. Our reputations, our comforts, our relationships can all be prioritised at the sake of our true relationship with God and our commitment to submitting to his plan for our lives, both individually and collectively as a church. Let's be honest, no one wants to feel left behind, lonely or inadequate. No one wants to feel vulnerable, excluded or considered less than anyone else. Therefore, we tend to do whatever we can to remain loved, respected, admired by people. At some point, we swing from seeking relationship with our one true ruler, God, and settle for seeking approval and relationship with people, a plan that is destined to fail. This world today talks so much about equality, doesn't it? We hear it all the time. Everywhere we go, we're being pressured to not discriminate, judge, exclude. It's exhausting to know whether you're going to accidentally offend someone or to question where your own theology stands amongst the current world positions. What we're missing in all of this is that equality cannot be sought in an earthly way. People are going to be unequal by so many measures from intelligence to physical strength, from social standing to material wealth. However, we are equal before God. We know that we all have something to bring to the church community. God gifts us with different abilities and resources so that we can be active and passionate participants in the work of the church. But these abilities and resources can't be seen as personal pride points or personal shame points. They must be seen as resources for the sake of the entire church community. When we succumb to sin, we break relationship with God and with others. This can take the form of weakness as well as pride, and it's a denial of our human responsibility. 
Equality before God insists not only that the proud humble themselves, but that the marginalised take their place among God's children. Not everyone has the same gifts or fulfils the same role in the community. It wouldn't work. But all are children of the same God and students of the same teacher. Everyone has a role to play and gifts to contribute in God's kingdom. What we are invited to in this passage is to know that God who knows us and loves us. We are called to be brothers and sisters who do not need human masters to confirm worth upon us. Hallelujah for that. When we actively seek relationship with Jesus, we are set free from that human desire to want to have power and acceptance from others. We are set free from that stronghold in our lives of self-power by the refreshing truth of being truly known, accepted and loved by the one who gives purpose to our lives here to eternity. If we are finding ourselves unsatisfied, unloved, desperate for relationship, recognition or status from people, then we're probably lacking in our faith that God's love and approval is enough for us. If there is hate in our hearts, in the church body for someone or something, then there is a lack of faith in our hearts that God is why we're here at all. You might remember last week, Aaron was talking about our call to love. Love never fails. We must love God and love others. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? But you might also remember that I mentioned about the ending remarks of the book of Judges. The book of Judges is chaotic in that it follows the sin cycles of Israel, the church, tribal divides, redemption, and then returning to sin once more. The end verse, chapter 21, verse 25 says, In those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. This is a picture of what today's church can look like and possibly does look like if we are completely honest when we don't have King Jesus on the throne of our lives. We all just do what's right and what we think is best in our own hearts. But every time we'll fall short. We're not unified. We're not equal. We are all fighting for our individual relevance and importance over God. Today's passage from Matthew, Jesus' speech to the people, rounds out with him reminding us that we have one teacher and one father, that none of us are greater than the other, more knowledgeable, more talented, more holy. In fact, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This means that we don't need to make a task of reminding others of our worth. In fact, we shouldn't. It is an exhaustive and pointless task that only generally renders the opposite effect. What we need to commit to is drawing close to the Father who knows us. People will always let us down. It's true. People will always let us down. A church body who is not led by the one true King Jesus will always let people down, despite all the best earthly efforts. We're gonna, we will end up as a church to be expectation, but then there's that ugly reality. I want to finish by reminding you this morning, not of the human-driven hypocrite that can lay within us all when we're distant from God, but of the promise and nature of the God that we should be seeking. 
I'm going to do that by reading Psalm 139. And as I do that, I want you to hear the words, maybe even close your eyes so you can soak it all in. If you, and hear them as if you're hearing them again for the very first time. Take in each line. Let those faces, the voices, the fears of hypocrisy all fade away as you hear these words again. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in a secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake... I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked, away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So I want to encourage you to soak into these words of Psalm 139 this week. What fresh word is God saying to you? A song will play in a moment. Again, I invite you to rest and reflect on your own journey. Where are you placing your worth? What actions are you participating in that God is asking you to release from today? The Holy Spirit lives within us, right? We are made to be in fellowship with God. What flows from dedicated hearts in relationship with God is wholesome and equal relationship with others. The song words say, Within my heart is a melody that was not taught. In the darkest night it still goes on, the anthem of my God. Within my heart is a treasure that cannot be bought. When all else is faded, it will not. The presence of my God. 
Magnify the Lord. Let us exalt his name together. No one beside you, Lord. Honour and praise are yours forever. Before your throne in the mystery that can't be known is the majesty that yours alone. How glorious you are. You are the one who redeems the wrongs that I have done. Reigning over all the days to come. How glorious you are.